Hello and welcome. Thanks for tuning in to all talks of the First World Sepsis Congress. Did you know that December through February is the most common time for flu? That is why we have decided to release a special episode for you today. Here's the talk by David Morris, Lessons Learned from the 1918 Spanish Influenza, from Session 12 of the First World Sepsis Congress. As always, please head over to YouTube if you want to see his slides. We will stay on the schedule you can find on the Congress website for the full sessions, but from time to time we will release an individual talk. We hope you enjoy them too. If you'd like to give us feedback or have a suggestion which talk we should release individually, please send us a private message on the World Sepsis Day Facebook page. Now, let me hand it over to a colleague, Nikki Shindo from WHO, to introduce David Morris. Yeah, I would like to introduce our first speaker and um, keynote speaker, uh, Professor David Morris from National Institute of Health uh, from the United States of America. Uh, Professor David Morris is advisor to the director of NIH, and he also worked uh, with the U.S. CDC as the chief of respiratory and special pathogens branch. So um, he, I'm really looking forward to his his, his great um, story about um, lessons learned, and um, here's. Um, to um, pass the microphone to um, Professor Morris. Floor is yours, please. Uh, thank you, Nikki, and hello to everybody out there. Um, yes, I'm going to talk about a century-old pandemic, but this is not a history lesson. Um, what I hope to do is talk a little bit about how sepsis and septic shock and death from bacterial disease comes about, and um, this is to talk about natural history and pathogenesis, and one of the points to be thinking about as I speak is that if septic, sepsis and septic shock and death are the downstream events, what are the upstream events, and how do they progress? Because if we can answer that question, we'll have some ideas about what we can do to prevent the outcomes from happening. So let's go back in time more than 100 years ago, before the 1918 pandemic of influenza, and talk about something that is relevant to everything else I'm going to say, and that is the subject of bacterial viral copathogenesis, people being infected by two different microorganisms at once, one a virus and one a bacterium. Um, the realization of the importance of copathogenesis came about in the early days of the 20th century when immigrants were coming into Ellis Island in the United States, and officers, health officers there began to realize that um, children infected with measles and other viral diseases, but I'm speaking of measles most particularly, um, had a certain mortality rate. But if they were co-infected with other things like streptococci or diphtheria, their mortality rate was much higher. This was an epidemiologic observation. Um, a few years later, the United States entered World War I in 1917, the third year of the war, and there were a number of Army training camps set up, which had a total population at a time, as much as a million soldiers at a time, and there were outbreaks of everything, including um, a massive measles outbreak, which ended up uh, killing 3,206 3, soldiers. And these soldiers died not of measles, but of secondary bacterial pneumonia. 
one study, um, which is a particularly good study, cohorted soldiers that came in with measles. So and what they did is this. Every soldier who presented with measles had a throat culture taken for group A beta hemolytic strep, strep pyogenes, or then it was called strep hemolyticus. And soldiers who had a positive culture were sent to one particular ward to be isolated for their measles. And uh, soldiers who had negative cultures went to another ward and were recultured every day. And what they found was that of the complications and deaths, 100% of those were in soldiers who were colonized with strep. Now, nobody died of streptococcal disease per se. They died of secondary bacterial pneumonia, and streptococci was found in their lungs. And the, back, the pneumonia pattern was bronchopneumonia, and bronchopneumonia is a pattern in which the uh, lesions, at least in the beginning of the process, are around the bronchial tree. And I'll talk a little bit more about how that happens. So now we're coming to measles, and uh, I'm sorry, now we're coming to influenza, not measles. Um, I think as most people know, the measles epidemic in 1918 was the single most fatal event in the history of the world. 50 to 100 million people died. In our laboratory here at NIH, one of our laboratories here at NIH, we obtained from the Armed Forces Institute of Pathology pathology specimens from 58 soldiers who died in 1918 from influenza and recut and stained them and, and looked at them and found that 100% of these 58 um, autopsy slides showed that death was associated with severe bacterial pneumonia. We also did a literature search of the era of 1918 and early 1919, and we found every article we could find in 15 countries in multiple languages, 173 studies reporting autopsy results on eight, over 8,000 um, people, soldiers and civilians, all of these having both pathology results and bacteriology results. And what we found was that in 95% of cases, there were pneumopathogens cultured from the lungs at autopsy. By pneumopathogens, I mean bacteria that are normally or are sometimes found in the upper respiratory tract of normal people, but which um, have the ability to cause severe pneumonia. So 95% of those autopsies in soldiers and civilians that had uh, pleural effusions and the pleural effusions were cultured, 80.4% had these pneumopathogens. And significantly, the, of the people who died and who were, had blood cultures obtained before death, 70% had one or more positive blood culture. And the pneumopathogens I mentioned were particularly three, strep pneumoniae, which is pneumococcus, strep pyogenes, or group A beta hemolytic strep, and staphylococcus. But there were others as well. There were actually outbreaks in which fatal pneumonia associated with 1918 flu was caused by meningococcus, that is meningococcal pneumonia. And those soldiers did not die of meningococcal meningitis or even meningococcemia. They died of um, meningococcal pneumonia. So what are the lesions close up that are associated with these copathogenic infections? The viral lesions are fairly constant, and that is the infection of apical cells with bronchial, bronchiolar and bronchial respiratory epithelium. You can think of it as, as we know that um, the, the bronchial tract is lined with uh, protective cells, epithelial cells, that in, and there are goblet cells 
and mucin secreting cells and ciliated cells that protect the respiratory tract from anything going down. And um, these are the things that are destroyed. It's kind of like mowing the lawn. When um, the virus comes in, it mows the lawn. It strips away one cell layer thick of epithelium, and then other bad things can happen. So the 1918 pneumonias were almost all bronchopneumonias, just as we saw a minute ago, or I said a minute ago, uh, in talking about um, uh, measles pneumonia. There were bronchopneumonias, and almost all of them were associated with massive infection. Uh, but evidence of tissue repair was there. So the virus did its thing, but it repaired quickly. And one would imagine that had these people not got secondary bacterial infections, they would have been fine. They would have recovered, just like most of us recover from influenza. It's worth asking here, what was the proximate cause of death? These people died of bacterial pneumonia, but that, I'm not something that would be written on the death certificate. But what, how actually did they die? It's a little hard to tell from clinical notes written long before we had ICUs and the types of studies we can do now, like um, oxygen tension and so on. But it appears to me, at least, from reading many, many of these autopsies and clinical reports, that the causes of death were often from um, damage to the, um, uh, from hypoxia that resulted from either damage to the pulmonary tissue, there was just no more gas exchange, or else from alveolar edema, the alveoli actually were filled with water. Sometimes death appeared to result from sepsis and septic shock, um, presumably associated with multi-organ failure. And in some cases, not very often, death was due to heart failure or renal failure, apart from multi-organ failure, or from late complications. So by 1918, around the world, pathologists understood that this copathogenesis was what was killing people, the virus plus bacteria. A French physician said if grip or influenza condemns, the secondary infections execute. And the preeminent pathologist of the 1918 pandemic, William McCallum, a uh, Canadian-American, um, essentially said that he had never performed an autopsy of somebody who died of flu in which he didn't find bacteria. So just to sum up what I've said about measles and, and flu, there's these two pandemics in the military camps that were studied. And one was 1917 measles, the other was 1918 flu. 100% um, of all U.S. Army camps were involved. The deaths were large. The case fatality rate was large. The bacteria that caused the deaths were largely the same. And the pathology, with a minor exception or two, the pathology of measles pneumonia deaths and of flu pneumonia deaths were identical. This was essentially the same disease. And McCallum noted that um, it appears there were two great epidemic outbreaks of pneumonia, the first closely associated with measles, the second following influenza. In other words, he didn't think of these as epidemics of measles and uh, influenza. He thought of them as epidemics of severe bacterial pneumonia, which just happened to be set off by the two prevailing um, uh, uh, viruses of, the, of that era. Now, um, it's not possible, of course, from an autopsy to look at natural history and pathogenesis because an the person died only at one point in time. But, you know, in, when, uh, when autopsies are done, you can look at the tissues and, and find the lung tissue, for example, in different areas of the lung or in different stages of the process. And by doing enough of these, you can develop a sort of a picture of the progression, the natural history of the disease as it evolved, even though you're only seeing the snapshot, not the whole movie. And when you combine that with epidemiologic data, here's what seems to have happened. 
um, in both of these epidemics of measles and um, of influenza in army camps, there were colonization, what I would call colonization epidemics of bacterial pneumopathogens. These soldiers come into camps, they're in crowded barrack conditions. Um, there are epidemics in which everybody becomes, almost literally almost everybody becomes stuck colonized with strep, or if it's a, a different situation with pneumococcus. And, um, and then, then a cytolytic virus comes along, a virus that mows the lawn of the respiratory epithelium and may go all the way down the respiratory tree. There are the, the defenders against bacteria going, going out of the nose and throat and down into the lungs are gone. The defense is gone. The bacteria go down and adhere to the denuded, the basal layer under the denuded epithelial cells, set up bacterial pneumonia. And this is what explains the pattern of bronchopneumonia as opposed to lobar pneumonia. And by the way, the same sort of patterns are seen in flu deaths today. So now fast forward a little bit to the modern era where we have experimental techniques. And um, the um, a, a many researchers, including some at NIH, have begun to study viral bacterial copathogenesis in experimental models, usually mice, not a very good model, but it's easy, um, also in primates, and I'm going to discuss a little bit about that. In many mouse models and many laboratories, um, if you give an influenza virus, uh, for example, the 1918 virus or others, uh, plus a bacterium like pneumococcus, the pathology is much worse. And that's true, and the, and the death, the, the rapidity of death and the total death of the experimental animals is much higher when some viruses, at least, influenza viruses we're speaking of now, um, and some bacteria, at least, cause disease together or are given together. And it's the same thing, the same story I mentioned before that was put together from natural history reasoning about the 1918 pandemic a century ago. In viral infection alone, the epithelial cells are gone, but the basal cells remain. In copathogenesis, the bacteria come in and destroy the basal cells, and now the bacteria have access to the parenchymal tissue, and they can spread out unimpeded or largely unimpeded by the defense, by the defense mechanisms of the host. So um, some things we can say about studies done here and elsewhere are that, the, um, that influenza infections increases bacterial replication if the bacteria get there, and that this results in severe necrotizing bronchiolitis and alveolitis with also suppurative pluritis. pluritis. Also, and I'll show this in a minute, I'll discuss it in a minute, there's marked neutrophil activation, at least with the 1918 virus, and increased reactive oxygen uh, species and cell death and uh, elastase deposition, as well as um, activation of the extrinsic pathway and thrombosis. Now, there's a large body of experimental work on this, uh, and um, uh, I did, a few years ago, I looked at how many papers had been published studying influenza bacterial copathogenesis in a three-year period, and it was 252 publications. By now, it's many hundreds of publications. So many labs are working this, working on this. It's a big topic of research. And I want to also mention, this is a little bit of an aside, but one of the things learned from, this, um, from these animal studies was something that um, clinicians predicted was true 100 years ago in 1918, that um, pneumococcal transmission between experimental animals uh, is, occurs at a higher rate 
or only in some experiments when the animals are infected with influenza as well. That is, influenza infection also not only um, uh, is a setup for more severe disease and bacterial co-infection, it causes transmission of bacterial disease. So we're beginning to see a, 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 a pathogenic model of what's happening, and it begins with the widespread viral epithelial injury caused by the virus, influenza in, in the case I'm talking about. An inflammatory response occurs. In the case of the 1918 influenza, uniquely, that inflammatory response uh, involves uh, recruitment of a, an enormous number of neutrophils. In some other influenza viruses, most other ones that have been studied don't do that. Um, this viral damage leads to increased bacterial invasion and adhesion and higher replication or higher amount, uh, colony amounts of bacteria. Damage to the tissue results in decreased blood flow. Um, there's an immune response to the virus and to the bacterium. The viral immune response um, is, um, uh, uh, is involved in activating even more neutrophils, even in the, in the case of other viruses, not the 1918 virus. And um, the uh, uh, bacteria induces its own immune response. Um, and the, the downstream cascade of this is that neutrophils, and in some cases macrophage, release factor three, which cause increased platelet activation, elastase, um, which uh, causes thrombus formation, and um, uh, the uh, result of this is increasing tissue damage from the combined effects of the infection of the two organisms and the damaging immune responses to both of them. So I'm going to end by just um, uh, giving you some thoughts to ponder about, and these are my thoughts. They're not experimental research thoughts. But um, given that Given that a couple things that I'm going to mention, that influenza and other respiratory diseases like RSC and parainfluenza are so common and they're not likely to be prevented in the near future, we have no vaccines, for example, and they cause significant mortality, and given that colonization of the upper respiratory tract with these bugs of interest, pneumococcus, strep, and staph, and others, is very common and not likely to be entirely prevented in the near future, um, in most viral epidemics, only a small percentage of people have these severe complications, but when they do have at the time from the recognition of the complication, by which I mean developing bacterial bronchopneumonia, to the time of severe disease or death, is often very short, sometimes a matter of hours. So that suggests that there's a, if we're going to intervene with antibiotics, there's probably in many cases a really very narrow window of time in which antibiotics must be given, and after that time they may not work. Therefore, I think there's an urgent need to identify patients with impending complications and uh, perhaps uh, hopefully identify um, and use early biomarkers of bacterial bronchopneumonia, perhaps based on bacterial genes or proteins, host response genes, or systemic inflammation markers. We also need to understand more about the natural history and pathogenesis. Um, but in the meantime, we do have influenza and pneumococcal vaccines. They're not entirely perfect vaccines, but there's mounting evidence that they do reduce deaths. In some cases, don't do a good job of preventing disease, but when disease occurs, they do re reduce death. And I think, in addition, we need to make sure that healthcare providers counsel patients at risk, the elderly and um, those who, with chronic diseases who are 
most likely to die from influenza, RSV, and all these other viral diseases, uh, and have a plan for them to get seen on an emergent basis when a complication might develop. Thank you. Thank you, um, Professor Morris. Um, there is one comment from uh, uh, German um, participants that um, saying that we still have a high mortality rate from influenza um, in Germany um, annually from 10 to 12,000. And um, this is a comment from, from the uh, participants. And it is very likely that it is the combination of virus and bacterial infection that kills the, these patients. Um, so um, we would like to welcome more questions. Uh, while waiting for other questions, um, I'd like to um, pose some questions to you, uh, Professor Morris. Um, so um, it would be ideal if we could have these biomarkers, especially um, if it's, they are available um, as point of care diagnosis. But um, as a well, the World Health Organization has to be better prepared for the next pandemic. Um, if the situation is is um, such um, that the mortality is very high, and uh, if we are to see um, the same pattern like 1918, then uh, would you um, recommend the early use of? Um, antibiotics, antimicrobials um, to treat influenza as, uh, infection. Over to you. Okay, thank you. I, um, well, it's a good question and one I've thought a lot about. I guess I'd have to say that um, the, the evidence isn't quite there yet, in my mind, to make a clinical recommendation of treating patients uh, before they have a problem with antibiotics, and that entails problems of its own. Um, it's, uh, it's something that uh, perhaps should be a decision individualized by clinicians, um, and there might be several aspects of that. One is give everybody antibiotics when there's a flu epidemic. I don't think anybody is going to vote for that. Another might be um, just give antibiotics to people who are at high risk who have influenza, uh, but even, you know, not complicated, but uncomplicated influenza. Um, the problem with that is that the more, even in 1918, the problem, the case fatality rate was under 1% probably. So that it, it, whenever you give, you can't, the, the problem is we can't predict of all the people who get influenza, which ones of those are going to go on to get a bacterial complication. Even elderly people who are the group at high risk, the vast majority of those people get influenza and they'll do fine. So, um, I'm really not answering your question, but saying it would be an easier question to answer if we had a way to predict early on who was, uh, you know, coming down with a serious complication. And, you know, there are some of the work I presented uh, a minute ago that um, is, is from studies in which host response genes have been looked at and in uh, in, in animals, experimental animals, and it's becoming clear that the host immune response pattern to influenza bacterial co-infection is relatively specific for some viruses such that if you had a way to detect that pattern, um, you know, F3, high F3 release or something like that, um, it might be possible to someday have a test that shows that people are or are very likely to be developing bronchopneumonia, even though their chest x-rays will be fine and it may be afebrile. 
Thank you. And then um, I remember the famous W-shaped uh, mortality curve uh, during the uh, 1918 pandemic. And then um, the mortality was highest in younger populations, such as the um, the population represented by young soldiers. So um, are there any uh, immunological or specific um, reasons why these um, populations are more affected and have more complications like um, secondary bacterial or co-bacterial infection? Over to you. Yeah, it's an interesting question. I, I think that there's there's a lot of theories, but most of them don't seem to hold water. And I don't I don't think there's any plausible theory um, other than the theory that um, that uh, the rate was not necessarily higher in young adults. It was lower in people over that age range by because of immunity to a previous virus in the 1800s. Now. That's a theory that fits all the facts, except if it's true, that means that without that protective immunity, um, the case fatality rate would have been extraordinarily higher in people over uh, 40, something we've never seen with any influenza virus before. So I think, I think the returns aren't in. But it's interesting to note that the reason that all these people died, remember that the peak is not, the, the peak age in the, the dub of the W in 1918, which was uh, the the people who were in that peak were roughly age 20 to 40 or something like that, 25 to 45 in that age range. Um, those people who died didn't die of influenza. They died of bacterial pneumonia, just like everybody else. So we have to think of it as why did so many people die of bacterial pneumonia? Um, and their case fatality from bacterial pneumonia was no different than it was at other times. In other words, they just they, they had a higher rate of bacterial pneumonia but they didn't have a higher rate of dying from bacterial pneumonia than people in 1916 and 1913 and other years who had the same types of bacterial pneumonias. Complicated problem. <laughs> Thank you very much. Um, it's great talk. As always, thank you so much for listening and spreading the word about sepsis and World Sepsis Day. A huge thanks also goes to our sponsors, which you can find on the Congress website. All speakers and everybody else who made this possible. As mentioned earlier, we will be back on a regular schedule after this individual talk. See you next time. Fail, fail, fail.